Hello, everyone. Welcome to a brand new edition of the Cybersecurity Matters Podcast. I'm your host, Dominic Vogel, and joining me, as always, is my good friend, Christian Redshaw. Christian, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. How are you, sir? I'm fantastic because we have a radiating human, Chris Covell, coming on the podcast today. Cannot wait for this conversation. This guy is just awesome. Yeah, we uh, could have had him in person here. Could have had him sure in person. Yeah, it was going to be too rushed, but he's going to come in in the fall. Uh, he will come back in the studio. This guy is a guy who's going to be appearing again and again, but enough of me gushing about him. Chris, uh, thank you so much for joining us on the Cybersecurity Matters podcast. How are you doing today? I'm uh- well, thank you very much for asking. Thanks for the opportunity and the warm welcome and intro. Uh, we're super, super excited to have you on the show. Um, and, and you, you and I have started to develop a, a good friendship, but uh, for our loyal listeners and viewers who don't know about you, could you share um, a little bit about your personal narrative, your career narrative? Uh, what's your journey been like? And uh, just sort of sh- share a little bit of uh, highlights along the way. And can you include Boston Pizza? Yes. In that story. <laughs> <laughs> I, I still have a lot of non-disclosure. Ideas, you know, <laughs> so uh, we'll have to tread carefully. Fair. Sure. So I started my career quite by accident. That's a whole other, uh, whole other journey in of itself in Toronto, in the capital market space of all places, back when we had different broker dealers and also was interested in technology as a, a hobby and really got into it. Uh, back then, as we started to use and see technology really becoming much more pervasive in businesses, and I moved around some of the large banks once the whole consolidation of the industry began, that's where my technology career really took off. And if there's one thing I would take from that journey, I learned very early on. I had great mentors, great people around me. Technology is an enabler. Technology can be part of the solution. But it's so important we focus on the business. It's a business we're worried about. It's a business we're supporting. And a lot of the early issues I saw weren't technology issues. They were business issues. And there was a potentially important technology component, or sometimes not. So I went from capital markets and went from there to retail, which was a whole other a journey with Indigo Books and Music and dealing with supply chain and self-serve and omnichannel and the threat of Amazon and all these crazy things in it for all the e-commerce, new algorithms, new security concerns. And that was after we had just deployed the very first bank machines that use Microsoft Windows. So I used to have quite a bit more hair. No offense. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, being on the leading edge was fantastic, but extremely stressful, but a great learning experience for everyone. And so built up a risk practice also at Indigo Books and Music, then had the opportunity to come back home to the West Coast, where I'm originally from, and run technology for Best Buy, who had come to Canada by acquiring the local brand Future Shop, and, and helped in a, a similar domain around security, around navigating are weird and wonderful Canadian laws and regulations and different standards and payment industries and so on. And that leads us to Boston Pizza. So Boston Pizza was fantastic because you can imagine you've got all of these entrepreneurs. A lot of us are entrepreneurs, but try managing 350 to 400 of them who all own their own restaurant and think they know how to do things better or they have another idea or a better idea. And really, technology had been viewed 
as it is in some industries, as a cost and a necessary evil. And the reality was we were able to turn that around and be a bit of a game changer around a lot of the sort of analytics and the guest experience, the food waste, uh, labor, all the things you can do with technology. So that was fantastic. It was great working with uh, Jim for Living, who obviously is a bit of a household name, and his team learning that industry. There was nothing like uh, tasting ribs and chicken wings, pizza and 15 cocktails at 7 in the morning and then going to work for 8 or 10 hours. So that was uh, that was Boston Pizza. And then uh, brings us to Absolute Software, which is an endpoint security company headquartered in Vancouver, where I also ran the security practice, spent some time with customers and sales, which was a bit of a new direction for me, but awesome to be out in the field with customers and engineers and salespeople. And that leads us to the very most recent thing I've been doing, which is virtual CISO work for a number of fascinating companies. A lot of them are funded by private equity or by VC funds, and they're in hyper growth. They're doing exciting things. They've got their challenges, so it's great to help them get their programs going. That is a hell of a narrative, Chris. <laughs> there's there's more in there you're not saying. I know there is. Um, yeah, uh, absolutely love that. Um, I want to sort of shift the convo to the boardroom, so to speak. Um, yeah. And you know, cybersecurity often gets stuck in the IT doldrums, right, where it's seen as a tech issue. A lot of boards and executives say, oh, let the IT guy or IT team deal with it. What, given your experience, what do you see as being the necessary ingredients to really elevate cybersecurity out of the IT doldrums and into sort of the more risk management parlance for boards and executives? How, how do we go down that path? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. And for better or for worse, it's become an easier task to get it on the agenda because it's so commonplace now in everyday mainstream media where it wasn't typically in historically. So the board generally has a bit of an interest and it depends on their experience level and the type of industry, whether you're public or not, who your stakeholders are. Obviously, if you're a public company, you may have disclosure requirements that are different around risk. And and I think there's a a few key points here. One is to really position cybersecurity as part of an overall risk program. We talk about risk management and risk mitigation. And often there's a focus on, you know, what if Amazon goes down or Google or data center? The reality is that should be part of your overall comprehensive and robust risk program, whether it's foreign exchange, whether it's competitors, and and really framing it in that context, I've I've found has helped the board kind of, you see the heads nod around the table. Oh, I get it. This is just another element of our risk positioning and our risk posture. And, you know, there's a few things I would say when you're working with a board, and a lot of these honestly apply to any meeting or more generally than that. And I had an an excellent uh, sales leader recently who told me, look, everything in life is a sales campaign. And, And I agree with that. No matter what we do, you are selling something. You are selling what you need to do, you are selling the value to the organization. And it's really important that the board sees this not as, oh, you know, it's the last second last session of the day, I've got to get on a plane, I'm going to check my phone, whatever it is. 
you know, typically the cybersecurity segment of a doesn't get front and center and people super excited. So there's a few things that I've learned that have helped me along the way. One is to do your homework, know who's on the board, know what's bugging them, know the business well. Really, you know, understand is there anyone who has a risk background for a couple of reasons. One, you can engage with them probably more easily than other members on the board. Two, they're going to be the ones that are going to ask the tough questions that you need to be prepared for. You can't just sail through with a PowerPoint presentation. You know, I, I had a great opportunity to see Barbara Walters speak at a small event some years ago in Toronto. And somebody asked her, and I'm going to paraphrase the question, how she became successful in her time as a journalist in a very difficult environment, especially for women at the time. And she said, look, homework, you show up early, you stay late. And that lesson applies to a lot of different things. And it applies to the board meeting. You know, you need to understand what a board is looking for. You need to know your audience. Other things I would say is make it business relatable. Use practical experience. If there's been something in the media, there's been a competitor where there's an issue, uh, even if it's not directly relatable, being able to bridge that to what this whole sort of security risk management, risk mitigation piece is, and bringing it home to something that's relatable really helps. Whether you use some sort of analogy or ideally something, uh, you know, again, unfortunately or fortunately, there's no shortage of material, especially right now in the main, mainstream media around various risk events and their, their government, their state, their private, their public, their horror stories of personal, the, the list is unfortunately endless. You know, and, and I would say be concise is qualitative and quantitative as you can be. You know, one of the things I think some risk uh, people struggle with, whether you're a chief risk officer or you're a CISO, is really being able to present the value instead of just coming with hat in hand and asking for money. Well, I need this or so the six things we did in this program. Okay, so what is that doing for him? Why, why do I need to do that? What is the business problem we're trying to solve here? You know, is it people's lives because we make medical equipment and we'd rather not people hack our pacemakers and send us ransomware demands? Is it uh, critical infrastructure? Is it profit and loss? You know, is it real-time securities trading, airline, gas pipelines? We've seen all of these examples recently. So being able to, to quantify and saying, here's the likelihood and here's the cost and the type of scenarios that we could encounter. But at the same time, you've got to balance that so it doesn't come across as doom and gloom. We've all had the Eeyore in the room who, you know, oh, no matter what we do, it's, you know, we're basically, if this happens, we're going to be out of business. And- <laughs> So, so you, you've, you've got to, to the extent possible, be upbeat about it, you know, and it's, it's a little more difficult. And again, this is more, I find in presenting to any board or audience of stakeholders, you have to be able to read the room. Yes. The second you're looking at your room and they're got their head down, they're on their phone, they're looking at their watch, they're worried about their flight, you've lost them. So you need to switch tactics. You need to do something. And by the way, I'm not against using props. 
when uh, appropriate. I have used hammers and destroyed equipment in rooms to make a point. <laughs> Don't tell the insurance companies of companies I've worked for, but I've used pyrotechnics uh, <laughs> at times. You know, there's nothing like a piece of flash paper uh, made to look like a dollar bill or something to make people say, "You want to burn up your money here." <laughs> that that would be an example of what you call rattling the status quo. I would imagine. One of yes, I I have uh, I I think Dominic's heard me use my saber uh, presentation as well. Nothing like waking up a bunch of hungover people at an eight a.m. meeting by sabering a bottle of sparkling wine to prove a point. So, you know, get creative and and follow your strengths. You know, we all have our strengths and weaknesses. Lead with your strengths. Uh, and, and so, you know, I think all of those things together, and then at the end of it, like making sure that the board understands what it is you're doing and why and how. And when we look at the whole risk perspective, often we tend to underestimate response and recovery. We're getting better, but I can recall a day back at one of the big banks. I used to work for based in Canada. I won't mention which one, but they're a fan of the color green. And we had just started deploying localized computer systems. And the head of HR was super excited. He said, Chris, Chris, get this new system. It costs all this money. We're going to be able to do payroll ourselves. And it's going to be quicker and better. But I'm worried. I'm worried. What is it, Frank? He said, well, I want you to guarantee me, guarantee me nobody can break into this system or get at the data. And I said, Oh, easy. It is? says to me, I said, yeah, absolutely. He said, how do we do that? And I said, you don't turn it on. You don't connect it to anything. Nobody will get into it. And it took him a second. Oh, <laughs> like that. So as much as we manage risk, we mitigate risk, we detect things, we prevent things, it's important that the board understands what the limitations are. Oftentimes when there is an incident or an event, Leadership say, I thought, or how could this have happened when we spent this money? Or, you know, didn't we have this covered? Why doesn't insurance cover this? So being realistic about what is and isn't covered. So, you know, that's kind of my shorter version of what my experience around dealing with the board and stakeholders is. Does that make sense? Does make sense. Absolutely. That was as illustrative as a answer as, we, as we've had on the podcast, Chris. That was fantastic. It was comprehensive, I would say, precisely concise answer. So yeah, yeah, I really, really appreciate it, Chris. I feel like you're somebody that I want to know. <laughs> <laughs> we, need, we, we need you in our lives in some, some way. Um, Look forward to it. <laughs> I, think, I think actually we probably have time for one more question. So kind of going in a different level from the strategic oversight of the board and the C-suite, and into the security department and the IT department, what would you say are the main factors that drive action and change in, in an organization's IT and cybersecurity at that level? Yeah, it's usually an external event. And it's, especially these days, as I said, there's a lot more mainstream media. So it's, it's often a management or a board member will walk into a meeting or pick up the phone or send an email, hey, I was talking to XYZ or I was at this event or I read this article or this news feed and this happened. What does this mean? Are we prepared for it? 
it's fascinating, I find, whenever I go through a tabletop exercise of an incident kind of response exercise that I've never had one go as cleanly as the leadership thinks it will. I wouldn't say they're smug, but they believe they're well protected. And then there's kind of that moment, you can see the look of horror on their face when they realize how unprepared. So it's it's often an external event. Uh, these days, it can be driven by regulators as well. So, you know, we see a lot of, whether it's the SEC or it's in the healthcare industry or privacy GDPR, or UK GDPR, the so-and-so got hit with a fine, you know, or they were breached because they didn't do this or they lost this customer or this customer base because they did this. So typically it's external events. I'd say second to that would be an internal event. So something happened that they hadn't considered, thought would never happen. Somebody new comes on board. Something uh, changes around the leadership. Somebody comes in who has different experience. Or there's that recognition that the world is not perfect. You know, there are so many things we can plan for and prepare for, but you can't plan and prepare for everything. And so the, the thought around contingency, and I think that's one thing the pandemic taught all of us is how we need to be able to be adaptable despite our best intentions, our plans, our exercises, all the things we've done. You know, if you lose power for 5 million people or a massive natural disaster goes through an area, the world is going to be different for a while and the priorities are different. So that's another driver on the external event is these sort of, you know, the the uh, black swans, we like to call them, the events that people in hindsight say we should have seen that. There are all these warning signs of this impending pandemic, terrorist attack, whatever it is. And it seems obvious in hindsight, but at the time when it happens, everybody's in full reactive mode. So those events obviously tend to shift thinking, at least for a period of time, and sometimes permanently. We've seen. I think we. I think I would like to slip in one more yeah, question, if I could. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, I'm gonna. It's gonna be two. It's gonna be a forward slash. I'm gonna put them together. So, Chris, where do you see the cybersecurity landscape um, evolving in the next five to ten years, and um, where would AI? in your opinion, fit that picture? Yeah, I stay tuned. <laughs> you know, that, that is evolving that if you ask me this quite same question again in 10 minutes, you may get a different answer. <laughs> uh, what's interesting about AI is just the, you, you know, we, we've seen this before in different scenarios. So there's a lot to talk about there that's going to impact everything we do. But security for sure is going to be an aspect of it, both in on on the good side and the bad side, right? You're going to see the attackers use it and you're going to see people use it for detecting and preventing and responding to the attacks. So, you know, that would be around AI in terms of the future in general. You know, we, we've seen a lot of shift recently where the role has changed. The concept of security as, as, as DNA as part of a culture is becoming much more 
common among organizations to spend a lot of money on tools and technology. And, and I'm a big believer in process. And I believe we're seeing more of that where people in process are typically the weak points. If we look at a lot of the breaches over the years, there is often an element of people or process. Good old social engineering in all of its forms. You know, we deal with this massive amount of data. And I still think we're in the infancy days around data. If you think about data, it's almost like an industrial revolution. We've got all this data. We have used it in some ways for some rudimentary things. We haven't really, really used it. There's a few examples, but that data is going to start to become more and more meaningful, be used in more and more ways. Again, we could spend another hour talking about the use of data and analytics and predictive, but AI is going to drive that. Cybersecurity, privacy are going to start to overlap more. I think that you'll see the regulators, the governments start to get a, a greater focus. They tend to lag as do certain industries around cybersecurity and data privacy, and they're going to catch up. They have to. They may always be behind, but they're going to have to start catching up in a meaningful way. Chris, this was just an awesome, awesome conversation. Um, and it's a great way for us to <laughs> for us to end our recording day. Uh, thank you so much. Looking forward to having you in studio in the fall, and we can uh, dive deeper into AI, and uh, hopefully by then maybe some uh, NDAs have expired and we can uh, talk about some other things <laughs> as well. But thank you so, so much for taking time out of your schedule to join us on the Cybersecurity Matters podcast today. It's my pleasure, guys. It's been awesome. Thanks so much. Thank you so much, Chris. Uh, Chris and I will be right back to wrap up today's episode. Why managed service providers love the system hardening platform Sention. It saves time and resources by automating critical functions for system hardening. It provides an efficient and effective way to reduce vulnerabilities in your organization. It mitigates attacker movement and privilege escalation techniques and further prevents cyber attacks from happening in your organization. Now, here's an exclusive for Cybersecurity Matters listeners. Santion has a free offering of their cross-compliance database to get started today. A link will be provided in the podcast description. Santion will simplify your security management journey. Well, that was a fantastic high-energy episode. Um, lots of just laughs, wisdom, insights from Chris there. Uh, what was one of your key moments for that um, conversation? Aside from the other things I know about Chris that were floating around in my head that we didn't talk about during this conversation, um, he said something to the effect of technology is an enabler, but focus on the business mm-hmm. of, of the many things that uh, we covered there. Yeah, no, he's a well-seasoned traveler in, in the security and IT space. A lot of hard lessons learned from him and uh, really appreciate him sharing his wisdom uh, with us on the podcast today. Uh, so special thank you to Chris Covell for joining us and special thank you as always to our loyal listeners and viewers who join us each and every week. If you do want to check back on some previous episodes, please do so on the Cybersecurity Matters YouTube page or you can listen on your preferred podcasting platform. Till next time, be well, be safe, and we'll see you again sometime in the future on the Cybersecurity Matters podcast. Mm-hmm.